This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramatoshaloni land. Through our programming, we strive to amplify the voices of those who have historically been underrepresented. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hey, Adrian. Hi, Sonia. It's good to see you. It's so good to see you. I remember meeting you a couple years ago at the Building Accountable Communities with Miriam. I was remembering that too. I was like, oh, yes, that sweet face again. Yeah. Mm. And um, yeah, I guess before we get started, you know, I feel like there's something about just kind of acknowledging that we're humans in the world who might have had a busy day. And so just um, taking a deep breath. These beautiful people are here to just absorb whatever it is that we have to share, what you really have to share. And, you know, just wanted to start with asking you to check in. How are you doing today? Anything that you mm. want to say before we get started? Well, um, it's been a good day. I, I Earlier today, someone was like, how are you doing? And I, feel, I was like, I feel like I really harnessed my energy. You know, some days the day gets going and your energy is sort of moving in many, many, many directions. And it's like trying to get things done all dispersed. And today I felt like, oh, here I go. I'm baking bread. Here I go. I'm doing my work. Here I go. I'm doing, you know, I just felt very harnessed. Um, And I have to admit, we're like in my bedtime territory right now. So I'm just sort of like, I just drank some black tea, threw on a red lip. And I'm just like, okay, you can, you can, you can do this. You can be awake. Hit hit you with it. I can hit you (laughs) with it. (laughs) Yes. I was like, I am here. So. I was like, let me put on some sparkles and, you know, do the, I, we have this like tincture that my friend Dory Midnight made for pleasure activism. And I was like, oh, I always like, when I take that right before a pleasure activism event, that also really helps. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all those things, you know, it's new moon window. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Feeling, so feeling alive. Yeah. yeah. How about Great. you? How are you feeling? I'm doing okay. Um, you know, I actually got my COVID vaccine shot yesterday. and I, Oh, I wow. Cried. Congratulations. I, cri- I did. I cried when it happened. Yeah. Because it was like this, oh, my God, I've been holding so much stuff in. Absolutely. Um, about what's possible or not possible. I think the woman saw me crying. She's like, can I still give you the shot? I was like, no, I'm crying you're like, because no, you're giving I, it to I me. I want this. Give, give it, it to me. me. Give it to me. Oh, that's exactly. so beautiful. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. So let me ask you another question, because there are these two amazing books, Pleasure Activism, obviously, that we're going to talk a lot about. But you also just wrote this incredible book, We Will Not Cancel Us, which I, I have a gang of questions about. Yeah, um, I'm like, can we talk about it? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah. Can, so my question is, because one thing I've learned from you is to like go with the flow of like what's alive. So if we start with a few questions about We Will Not Cancel Us, and then lead to pleasure activism. Does that sound yes, okay? Yes, I'm, I'm okay. fine with it. I'd love, I okay. actually would like love to hear what you think about it. You know, I, like I, we're, we're in this work. So I'm just like, I yeah, don't know. we're in this work. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I'll tell you what I think about it. Um, it made me feel a little repaired. It made me feel softer. It was like a really big gift. Um, I feel like um, I thought it was one of the most bravest things I've read. Um, you know, I know that you wrote unthinkable thoughts 
um, in July, and then you followed up with this book. And I feel like it's this brave love letter to the movement, um, particularly, you know, movements for justice to give voice to both a movement that strives to be about liberation and harm and abolition, but also suffers from enacting some punitive stuff um, that gets totally, you know, codified into like cancel culture and calling out culture and shaming. And so I guess, you know, and, and I think what's amazing is you also talk about just this, like this idea that we're replicating the carceral system. Uh, the very system we're trying to abolish is the system that we're replicating with each other and that we should be really choosing life. And so, you know, and choosing each other. And I was like, ah, you know, it just feels so much gratitude for that work. So I guess for others that are here, like, man, you wrote this book. <laughs> oh, man. How do you want to frame it for people? Why did you write it? What do you want yeah. to say about it? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you. I mean, thanks for reading it. You know, like I really, I really have been this place where I'm like, please, people read this book and and feel the love. It is a love letter. It feels like it felt like a love letter. Um, and uh, when I first wrote the piece, and when it was like, that was also a love letter. But it was like, you know, sometimes love shows up as rage, or love shows up as like a shouting out, you know, just like, ah, oh, come on, y'all, like, come on. There's just such a, you know, I recognize now looking back that I was like, I was coming back out of a sabbatical and I, I got hit with this wave after wave of call this person out, do this, cancel this person. Like, and I was just like, it made me feel so full of grief, you know, that I was just like, this is, this, we are who we have and we are all fucking up. I mean, we are like we are immersed in a system that is training and socializing and shaping us to hurt each other. And so we're hurting each other. Um, but then here we are saying we believe that we can move beyond this system. And so to, I think the framing up of it is like if you're if you're an abolitionist, if you're saying defund the police, if you're talking about wanting to end the carceral system, if you're talking about wanting to end policing and prisons and if you've ever had a loved one um, who either caused an egregious harm and you watched them grow and change or caused an egregious harm and you saw them not get a chance, not get a second chance, not get the, the opportunity to return, um, whether that was because they went into the crossroads system or because, you know, they got canceled in their community or dismissed in their community or something else. Um, it's for all of us to be in this conversation with each other because the anger is righteous. The the feelings that sur as survivors that we have that are like, I want this person who has hurt me as far away from me as possible, and I don't want them to be able to hurt anyone else. And all of that is legitimate, righteous. Those are the right feelings. Right? It's like that's how it feels. So I'm like, so then what do we do? And I think that to me, the book is asking that question of like, I don't think that the just rampant cancellation and rampant call out everywhere is the answer. I want us to reserve that technology for the times when it is the only possible option. Way. Mm -hmm. And then I want us to skill ourselves up in a bunch of other options. And, you know, we know this, right? When we first met each other, Beyond Survival was not out as a, te as a textbook, right? Now it is. Um, Fumbling Towards Repair was not out as a workbook. Now it is. Um, Patrice Cullors has a book coming out this year, The Abolitionist Handbook. Andrea Ritchie is working on a book on abolition and emergent strategy. Mia Mingus has a website full of resources. Like, there's so many 
options, you know, like it's like it, little shoots, little green shoots coming out of the earth. Like actually there's abundance under here of resources and skills and stuff. Um, the next book I have coming out is a facilitation and mediation book. And I'm like, mediation is a part of this. Community accountability processes is a part of this. Turning inward and, and asking ourselves from where can I generate the compassion to continue being in relationship with people who have caused harm, especially people who have not caused it directly to me, right? So I'm like, when someone's caused harm directly to me, I want my boundary. I want to be able to set it. But if they've caused it to someone else that's in the community, am I not responsible for, for that person, you know? And my mentor, um, I, was, I was grateful to have, lucky to have Grace Lee Boggs as one of my mentors. And she's been in my mind a lot lately. Um, but one of the things she talked about was like, we have to be able to take responsibility for each other and for our communities. And I think that's what Miriam Kaba is talking about, you know, and she's she's saying like, we're not going to move from the carceral system to some other system where we outsource accountability and we outsource ending harm. Like, whatever this transition looks like, it's one where at the end, we have more responsibility for holding those who are still socialized to cause harm. We have more responsibility for each other. So it's all of that in a very tiny book. It's a lot of questions, you know, that um, I'm, I'm grateful every time someone's like, I, I read it, like, especially people who read the original essay, because I'm like, just read the book. I, it's like a lot happened in that, in that, those windows, uh, those months yeah. in that window. Yeah. How was it received by the community, would you say? Because it's a pretty big thing to say, like, hey, folks, let's look yeah. at ourselves and be vulnerable. At, like, what are the things that we're doing right and what are the things we could probably work on to change yeah. which is yeah. not always well received so I'm really curious about oh yeah that. <laughs> yeah I mean you know the overwhelming response was positive initially and then uh, the second wave came that was like you messed up and here's the ways you messed up and um and it took a while for me to be able to hear that you know I was really you know I felt so passionately like I'm I'm doing this thing that is an act of love. And so it was really hard for me to hear that it, that I had fumbled in certain places. Um, but because the other p feedback was so positive, that was like, this is happening in our communities, it's happening in our institutions, it's happening here, here, here. I felt like there was something worth saving. There was something worth still, I was like, can I clear away what, I, what, what isn't right about this and get to the like root system of, of what is right inside of that. And I, I, the feedback to the actual book has been really incredible. Like, um, there's definitely a few people who are still like, I'm not reading it, or I'm not engaging with it, or I still I'm not feeling it. And that's fine, right? Because for me, I really want people to just, I'm like, have these conversations in your community, make a choice, right? <laughs> make, make choices around how you want to hold this. I felt like we were operating without having had those conversations. Um, let's get into these distinctions. A lot of people have reached out to me who read the original piece and read the book and are like, good job. Like you, you did it. You pay, you listened. We can use this. Like we can, we, this gives us a jumping off point. Um, so, you know, it's a slow burn though. I expect it to be like a slow process, right? Cause it's, it's one of those things where people, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, I, I don't, it's kind of like, I don't want to be seen with that book yet. <laughs> you know, I got to see what other people think about it. And that's okay too. Yeah. 
Well, here's what I think. Like cutting edge work that's hard to say is actually not going to be received well all the time, right? And it's going to be painful and you might be lonely as the writer. And I think we hold writers to the standard of like, you're supposed to know everything even before we've like thought about it all together. So you wrote a blog piece at a moment in time and then you wrote a book that was filling out all the other ends of this blog piece. So I found it to be like, here's the heart of of something that really needed to be said. And then here are the things that needed to get filled out. And so in that filling out, I think wanting to ask you about two things. One is you make this beautiful distinction between conflict, abuse, and harm, which I feel like is really important. You know, it's so at the essence of it not getting collapsed. Yes. So I wonder if you want to say something about that. Here. Yeah, I mean, I really want to uplift um, Maurice Mitchell Brody and Emmy Kane because, um, and my sister Autumn Brown, because they all sat down with me with critical feedback uh, about the original piece, which was that I was doing that same collapsing that I was, I was saying like, y'all, we are collapsing all this stuff into one response. And they were like, yeah, and you are collapsing all of this into one conversation that it needs to be pulled apart and it needs to be held distinctly. And so, uh, you know, then I started looking around for resources. I'm like, well, who has pulled it apart? Like, is there some place where it's really clear? And I didn't find something that was like, this is clear. Like, people could pick this up and run with it. Um, But I learned, I felt like I was learning, you know, because I'm someone who's like, I've experienced all these things and I still can collapse them. So one of the big things I wanted to pull apart was power dynamics inside of it. That abuse is when someone is actively doing a power over move, right? Actively using whatever privileged position, positionality, social location they have to manipulate, to gaslight, to hurt another person, to control another person. Um, And the idea is how can I keep that person in my control? How can I keep this institute in my control? Because we do have those kind of abuses of power. How can I keep this nation in my control? We've just come out of having four years of an abusive president um, and that being able to make the distinction of like, when is it abuse? And that abuse really can't be mutual. Like, it's not like, oh, we're just having, we just have a, a fucked up power dynamic, whatever. It's like, n- someone is actually working the situation and there's some intention to it. Um, and then conflict, right, is where people may be at a power differential. They may be on the same level. Um, they may be multiple <laughs> folks involved, but there's really like two positions that are being held, sometimes more, um, that are just not aligned with each other. And what I was seeing happen on the internet a lot was that both those things, like someone being abusive and two people being in conflict or two or more people being in conflict, get collapsed into the language of harm. And so harm is much harder to actually parse out, like, well, when is it, who gets to determine what is harmful? Um, and harm is really about impact. And I remember as a facilitator, there's this um, agreement that I often use, which is um, it's basically, you know, whenever someone says, oh, you hurt me, people are like, I didn't mean to, right? And so it's like, okay, I honor your good intentions, but I have to attend to the impact. And to me, harm is when we're talking about the impact, that it's like, I felt harmed. That harm may have happened because you did not operate with principal struggle. You didn't have integrity in the conflict. It may have come from abusive behavior, right? And it's really determined by the person who's experiencing it. And what I find right now is we have like this wave where people are calling everything harm and then it becomes very, and I am guilty of this too, that I'll just be like, yeah, harm. 
And I understand it. We look for these shortcuts to be able to talk about impact. Um, so those are some of the things that I kind of was able to pull apart. I also kept going. I was like, and there's also misunderstandings. There's holding contradictions, which a ton of movement organizations are operating inside contradictions that they then um, hold each other accountable to as if they're not the contradictions of the world. So people who are in nonprofits being furious at other people in the same nonprofit for, you know, colluding with capitalism. But I'm like, everyone who's working in the nonprofit industrial complex is colluding with capitalism because we're participating in philanthropy. Now, we need to drag philanthropy or destroy philanthropy, right? There's moves to make there. But that contradiction, to hold it against each other as if it's an individualization, as opposed to a, a understanding that we're in a setting, you know, those kind of things. I was like, how do we discern, discern, discern here? And then be able to really say the call out, the cancellation is for those people who are engaging in abuse. And it's in people who are engaging in abuse repeatedly, often. It's people who are engaging in abuse, and we have tried to hold them accountable in methods that would not um, make it a huge public show. Because uh, I think a lot of times then it becomes this public show of having a certain politic instead of actually being able to address this person's journey for change. So, yeah, it's all about like developing some common language to have more distinctions, to have more discernment around, if possible. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's so much in the work that you're also speaking towards like abolition and talking about abolition, right? And so there is this piece where we say we're about something and then we have this contradiction like nonprofits in philanthropy, like enacting, reenacting sort of carceral thinking, othering each other in ways that are just like really unpleasant. So, you know, just talk to us about abolition. Like, I feel like it's just like, it's a word that's thrown out, but it's so deep, it's so powerful. It's got such a lineage. And like, what is abolition inside and out? What is it? How do we be abolitionists with each other? Which is a question you ask. How do we yeah, do that? I want to And know. not <laughs> hold the punitive, you know, I think yeah. even sometimes the extreme of the call out, you know, that we, you know, it's debatable to me, like just, what, what, like when we're talking about being, you know, punitive, how do we really, how do we excavate the punitiveness from who we are, right? How do we, what is, what is this whole abolition thing? What is that? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, in, in this journey, I, I think the first time when I was like, I'm an abolitionist is I, I was reading about abolition in the period of enslavement, active, you know, enslavement, chattel slavery, and, and the, the kind of people who said, I stand against this entire system. Nobody should ever own another person and nobody should be able to punish another person the ways that these people are punishing and owning their labor and all of those things. And if you've paid any attention to the prison industrial complex at all, you know that slavery didn't end, it transformed. So we have this new way of doing it where we can own people, put them behind bars, um, use their labor and punish them in whatever way we deem correct. And so to me, the work of abolition never ended. It, it also transformed. So now we see people who are like, I'm arguing against the prison state, I'm arguing against policing. Um, and so for me, you know, and I think this is, it's been a great tension, like I've had this tension, this conversation with a lot of people, they're like, well, we can't be like the carceral state. We don't have the power that the carceral state holds. We don't have the power that the police hold. We know, and I'm like, 
we don't have that power. We also don't have no power. Like there's something about the power of, of having a community and saying there's belonging and you get to be a part of that belonging and we will hold you through whatever harm you cause. And, you know, a huge part of transformative justice, which I think is like the modern flow of abolition, you know, is saying like, we want to keep people out of the carceral state. And I think the distinction or maybe the piece that I'm saying is like, I also want to keep them out of punishment. Like that not, I don't want to cause them additional harm. And I believe that when people are causing this kind of harm, it's because harm has happened to them. Um, there's this beautiful quote Daniel Sered uh, has offered us. that's like, nobody experiences harm the first time when they're enacting it on another person, that these things get socialized and planted into us. So for me, abolition is like, how do we end the cycle of harm that is running underneath the policing, the prisons, the punishment, the othering, the pushing people out and wanting to say, when someone causes harm, you're no longer a part of us. We will put you elsewhere. And I also think trying to, it's like the punitive part to excavate it. For me, I've had to really examine how much I enjoy it, right? Mm -hmm. And why do yeah. I enjoy it? And I enjoy it because it means I'm not like that. <laughs> you know, like I still belong. I still belong. I haven't done something that bad. Or if I did, I never got caught or whatever it is, but I'm not bad like those people. And I'm like, what? what is that about? Is there something in me that's wired to want to destroy? How do I turn and look at the shadow of that. Um, and and I'm like, I don't want to say, and it only started during slavery because I'm like, all of our peoples going back throughout history, all of our peoples have different places where we have caused each other great harm and enjoyed punishment. And, you know, they're gladiators and <laughs> we've gotten joy out of watching people, other humans destroyed. So it's a very old tendency. I don't think we'll resolve it overnight or very quickly, but I definitely don't think we're going to get to true abolition if we don't examine it, if we don't turn and face it. Because I'm like, I don't, I don't want us to say, okay, we got rid of the, the prison system and now we just rampantly punish each other, <laughs> you know, much more. And nobody ever gets to relax into belonging and knowing like on my worst day, I still belong to someone, yeah. to some people, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's so deep like a, not a question that many people have asked is like, why do we, like what, and I think you ask it, why does it feel like we're committed to punishment and enjoying it, the enjoying it part? Like, what is that all about? And I just, I'm not sure there's an answer, but just really being able to sit with like, like when it, because we talk about when it feels bad that I did this thing, but like when it feels kind of good that I yeah. said that thing and I needled you and I, uh, Yeah, you know? because it also, it creates a different kind of belonging like part of what I was seeing was like oh the price of belonging now is will I will I join the group to tear down this person who I don't know you know like <laughs> I'm like I don't know that person I don't know the person who's asking me to tear them down I don't know the scenario that happened like even amongst my friends you know and I think anyone who's very close to me will tell you that like if they come and say this asshole did this or whatever I'll be like Tell me more. Like, what happened? You know, like, I want to understand the whole dynamic. And um, I try to hold some space for, you know, I'm like, even if they were an asshole in this moment, this is still, you know, the father of your children or the, you know, this is still someone who you at some point cared about or loved. And are they a lost cause? You know, and 
is what we need a boundary or is it the destruction of that person? And I think a lot about that. Octavia Butler is, you know, I, I am like a scholar of her work and she says our fatal human flaw, she wrote it into a story, so it's not like she walked around saying it, but our fatal human flaw is our commitment to the combination of hierarchy and intelligence, that we use our intelligence always to keep enacting hierarchy, hierarchy, hierarchy through war, through punishment, through all these different, through supremacies, right? We're constantly saying, I am better than, no, I am, no, I am, no, I am. And we're going to hierarchicalize ourselves right off the planet. You know, like we have actually something that we need to attend to, which is our relationship with the planet. And we're so busy warring with each other, battling each other, tearing each other down that we're not attending to the real <laughs> struggle of our lives, you know? Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. One more question about this and then we'll move to just a whole nother subject. <laughs> and then um, we'll go have a great time. <laughs> and then we'll so go nice. have a great time and just be pleasurable. Um, well, yeah, I, find, I think I, I find this pleasurable also. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah, I, actually, I mean, I'm I like, I want to talk about these things. That's yeah. part of why I wrote that. Well, I mean, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that like hard conversations and like, I was thinking about labor, you know, I was thinking about the labor you put into this book and the fear that you might've had to confront or like people's feedback or, and just like the relationship between like labor and joy, you know, like doing something hard and feeling pleasure and just sort of, you know, and maybe that's something you could even speak to is like, what do you feel is the relationship between like hard work and, and fulfillment and pleasure? And oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I think there's something like Tupac said, like, I don't want to dip it that easy. You know, like I've always <laughs> been the kind of, you know, I'm a Virgo. I'm like, I like to work hard. I like to really dig into something and in this instance, it was like, I had the, I have this, I have this very strong sense that like, this is worth it. This is worth it. Like people that I respect are upset with me and I didn't do this as well as I could have. Like I wasn't patient. You know, I was like, I didn't look to see what the right wing was saying about this or where JK Rowling was or all these things, you know, people have thrown everything that has to do with cancel culture in my way. And I didn't, look at all that. But when I look ahead, like if I imagine um, being a part of an era of intervention, right, where we're like, no, y'all, you know, abolition means we have to go this way, like we're heading this way, but actually, we got to pull ourselves over here, and we've got to go this way, like, for something much greater than ourselves, if we're going to break with centering whiteness and centering supremacy and centering these ways, we have to go this way. Then when I think about what movement might feel like, that makes me, it makes me very emotional. You know, when I think of how hard it has been to be in movement where I'm like, this is the place I most want to belong is amongst the freedom fighters of our time. I want us to belong to each other and to have each other's backs and to speak well of each other when we're not in the room and to just look and be like, wow, look how hard we're all working so hard, like so far beyond any <laughs> reasonable capacity. We are just trying to fix the whole world, you know, and I want us to fight for each other. Um, and when we see each other fall, I want to, I want to look and be like, oh my God, you fell down. Like I'm going to, let me pause and let me help you get up and like, let's like, I'm going to lean on me. Like, let's go, you know? And we're so far from that right now. And that's okay. 
you know, we've been under attack for so long. Um, I think we're tired. And, you know, you, you always take it out on the ones closest to you when you're that tired. But, um, yeah, I feel like what I'm, what I'm committed to is, like, I want movement to feel like a joyful place, a joyful place where you enter and there's a lot of hard work, but you're like, I belong. I'm going to work hard. And when I fuck up, people are going to tell me and we are going to work it through. And I know how to set boundaries and other people can give me boundaries and I know how to honor and respect those. And I will recover from my mistakes, you know, um, for not just myself, but like on behalf of my people, my community, my species, like I will learn how to be a better human. Like I'm like, that's what I want movement to be about, you know. And so I feel like it's not a joy necessarily in the present moment, but you know, part of what I'm trying to learn from our indigenous comrades is like, we have to be willing to think a lot longer than just our own lives. I'm like, I can, I can navigate if like there's people who are mad at me for the rest of my short life, if it means that in three generations or four generations, movement feels like a love place, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, I'm like, that, yeah. that'll have been worth it. The joy, I'll be a joyful ancestor. <laughs> you know, right? be okay. yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to just share something a little harder, a little more vulnerable for me. Yeah. Um, just, uh, you know, I mean, I think for spiritual, political reasons, I have still put myself in sort of a place of calling myself a restorative justice person because I think in its more, it's more evolved iteration. It's really about uprooting harm you know, from a, a paradigm that's grounded and not being punitive and in relationship. And I know it has flaws, you know, and it, there's also a tradition in Oakland and in Chicago and New York that is very aligned in racial justice and gender justice. And when I hear, and this is a movement thing, right? When I hear people in the transformative justice community kind of like down it, I get my hairs, my hairs go up. I get, I feel angry. I feel disrespected. And I want to be a crab in the barrel, and I want to be like, rah, 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 but you do this and da, da, da. And I hate that part of me. I hate the side of me that gets catty and gets angry. And because I feel disrespected, right? Because I feel like, well, you don't see my work. So why should I see your work? And I feel like, you know, I feel like there's what your book did for me was feel like it's a part of a way to bridge something, right? So when we name like what might be wrong in our own movements and like, how we could just give each other a lot more grace of like, hey, things are young. We're still trying to figure things out, you know, <laughs> yes. and being kind of like radically honest about each other and about not speaking crap, you know, when we're out of the room. Like, like let's let's have some real talk, right, about that. Let's have some real talk about how we unearth and excavate those things so that we can actually be, I want to be, I want to belong Wait. to you. I, yes in the mud in the mud <laughs> me too Sonia and like <laughs> I really love that you said this particular point because I'm so oh, guilty of that of that restorative yeah. thing you know because my I'm such a now I'm starting to understand like I'm more of a philosopher like I'm like but you know just for me it's just like the idea I'm like very clearly I can just be like oh punitive is this restorative is this but then transformative you know and like I get really into it and I was in a conversation with someone uh last year who was just like a restorative justice activist and like don't dismiss what I'm up to and I was like I'm not like I'm just being like that's great but like and she's like but yours is better and I was like oh oh yeah. like I was just you know it's just like one of those beautiful moments where I was like 
it didn't even, I was like, obviously we all want to be moving towards whatever goes to the root. And, and she was like, but we've been doing really good work here for a long time. And I just, to me, it's so important to take those moments and be like, that doesn't feel good. Can we unpack why it doesn't feel good? Can we get, can we get, can I get more thorough? Can I get more um, inclusive? Can I not, you know, be engaging like, oh, there's something better or what this other new thing, now it's new and we've created it, it's better. Um, so I, I actually really appreciate that because I'm like, that's how we get in being a yeah. conversation, you know, being in that's it together. Right. Yeah. Um, and not just like battling with vocabulary, but really that's being able right. to be like, what is the idea that you're moving forward? Here's that's the idea right. I'm moving forward. Like, right. let's weave right. those. And how do we really work with what we're about in our hearts and our actions and not get stuck on the words, you know? Yeah. Oh, thank you for listening to that. Um, yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah. So let's move to pleasure activism because like someone's going to kill me if we don't talk about this. <laughs> We're like, <laughs> we met this dog with my brother. <laughs> We're like, like, um, we came here on a Friday night with our drinks and our, hand, you know. Like, yeah. Yes. And our little sex toys <laughs> to talk about pleasure activism. Hello. Um, so here's oh, my question. Great. Like, I, I want to start out with just like, I found like, I was just so excited to read this book that felt so much more than like a, an anthology. It felt like an all boats rise, like a collective lifting up of black women and their wisdom and their care and their pleasure and not denying, um, the joy of black women. Um, and so I want, I just wanted to ask you about like why it's so important to position the work in this way, why it's so important to talk about black women's joy and pleasure and why that has to be prioritized in this time. That's great. Um, well, you know, my, my orientation with my whole life is being like, okay, what's the best stuff I ever heard? and the best stuff I ever learned. And then like, how can I amplify that and and keep going with it, whatever that looks like. So Octavia Butler is that for me, has been that teacher. Miriam Kappa is one of those teachers, you know, where I'm just like, okay, Miriam is right and <laughs> let's keep going. Um, and there's, there's a lot of those teachers, but Audre Lorde is a major one. And so when I read The Uses of the Eroticus Power, um, it shook me. It shook me like that. This there's a particular paragraph in there where she talks about once we have experienced that erotic yes, it becomes impossible to settle for those uh, states which are not native to us, such as self-negation, um, such as despair. And I spent a lot of my twenties. I think when I look back, I was in despair a lot, um, and I didn't know the language for. I couldn't figure it out, but I didn't feel at home in my body and. I didn't have a larger analysis around that. I just thought there was something wrong with me. And I didn't understand that oppression and trauma displace us from ourselves and from our inherent right to pleasure and to satisfaction. Um, and when I use pleasure here, it really is that contentment, joy, satisfaction, like being able to really feel the good in your life. Um, so Audrey opened a door for me, you know, that was like, there's a way that you can reclaim yourself that doesn't require anyone else giving you permission to be um, or liberating you from anything. It's like, you will have to do this. But once you do it, you won't be able to, you won't go back. And I wanted that guarantee, right? And I want that guarantee for everyone who's ever experienced oppression to understand that when oppression happens, when the trauma of oppression lands on us and in us, it distorts us from our inherent purpose 
of, of, of being a human, which is, I, I believe, our purpose is to move towards life. It's We are life moving towards life. We are creating more ways of being alive. We are in these biodiverse systems that want to live and want to, you know, be dazzlingly different from each other. It's actually a really miraculous thing that is true all through nature. Everything in nature is moving towards more life, and so are we. And but then in that inside of that distortion, we could think, no, I want to take my life, or no, I want to take someone else's life, or I will sacrifice my whole life, or maybe my whole life will just be drudgery, and then I'll retire and have a good year or two on the beach before I die, or I'll live a living death, and um, I will negate all of my desires and all of my longings, which having seen enough black women do that, I'm like, we are losing so much brilliance. We are losing so many ideas. We are losing so many, there's so many creations and stories and things we need that are being lost to that the that impact of long-term trauma and oppression. So now I think it's actually a really important piece of what this era is about is that we have secured so much freedom. You know, that was the other thing. As I was saying, I was like, I'm one of the freest black people to ever live. Um, but I can't enjoy it. I'm not enjoying it. <laughs> you know, I'm like, uh, we're, we're all, I'm still finding ways to sabotage and bind myself to structures that don't love me and don't care about me. So pleasure activism really is like all the work we do to reclaim our purpose ourselves from oppression and then to look at the things that give us pleasure and to make sure that we are not numbing, that we are not deadening our lives, but that we are we are doing the things that bring us to life, that help us figure out our purpose, that move us towards ourselves and towards right relationship with each other and towards right relationship with the planet. Um, and it's really, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible what happens in a room that is invited to move together towards life in a movement that is invited. You know, Black Lives Matter, I think the reason it has been so impactful fundamentally is because life is at the center of it. And especially this last year of uprising, it was like people are dancing in the streets. People are in movement with each other. We are singing the art. You know, the movement for Black Lives has become like one of the greatest artists that ever lived, you know? And that's, it's an exciting thing to be to feel like, oh, look at us reclaiming our aliveness after the oppression of being in this American experiment. Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful. Um, your words are like a cake. You know, it's just like, it's so, <laughs> they're so rich. Here's cake. <laughs> word cake. Um, That's word great. Cake. I'm cake. into the word um, cake. Yeah. Love the frosting. Um, <laughs> there's something about, yeah, the book is very, it's like a very somatic liberatory read, you know, Yay. like reading. It feels like a journey of the body. It feels like it's a journey of your body and then like sharing uh, the possibilities for others to have journeys with their own bodies. Um, and I love how you, there's something you wrote about um, that your, your, your love of your body didn't start with diet and exercise. It started with pleasure. Yes. It started with pornography, self-pornography and self-sex. And I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to share a little bit about sort of the body journey for you. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, like many people, I think in my generation, um, my first relationships with my body were corrective. You know, my first intentional, I was like, oh, 
I must be fixing my body. Like I have this body and so clearly something is wrong with it. Like it doesn't look like a body that would go on Cosmo. It must be fixed. And so dieting and exercising and constantly trying to fix and change my body happened early. I was told when I was very young that no one wants to marry a fat girl. And this was like the first time I gained like 10 pounds, you know? And so it was punitive, (laughs) you know? It was like, I was constantly like, something is wrong. It must be corrected. And I must deny myself things that give me pleasure. And uh, I went to college, you know, I, I, I did the things that seemed like pleasure, you know, drinking so much and getting so high. And I discovered numbness, which was like next to pleasure. And I was like, you know, oh, like that seems like pleasure. But really, it started to kick in for me when I got my first vibrator and when I discovered ecstasy. Those were two things where it was like, oh, oh, God. And I was like, hold up, 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 hold up. Because I started having orgasms when I was very young, but it was very like, you know, this is this very secretive thing. And then I was like, wait, you can go in a whole store that is just dedicated to that feeling. <laughs> that was so mind blowing for me. And I'm, forever grateful to Babes in Toyland down in the Lower East Side. <laughs> so I was just like, I remember the first time walking into that space and walking out with a thing that was mine. And it was just about my pleasure. And I would go through these days where I was just like, I'm just masturbating. Basically, that's my whole purpose today. <laughs> I just have like orgasm after orgasm. And probably I was going too far, doing too much. But I was just like, I felt so alive. I was like, I don't need anything else. I just, I'm feeling myself. Like, I could feel, you know, the wiring inside my body. I was like, this is connected to this, is connected to that. Like, it just felt like such an internal discovery. And then ecstasy was like, you know, it really saved my life. And I think, as with anything, I want to always be careful with these things because I'm like, if you have an addictive personality, you have to be careful with everything. I have to be careful with everything. And it was amazing to come across this medicine that, and I was, I was, I started my political kind of like activist career. My first activisty job was at the Harm Reduction Coalition, which was such a blessing and probably the reason I'm still alive because I was trained like to reduce the harm that comes along with using drugs. Make sure you use them in moderation. If you can't use it in moderation, don't use that substance. There's many others. Like there was so much about it that was like there's a I, I, I had a little ecstasy testing kit so I could actually test the pills that I received and make sure that they were MDMA and not speed or whatever. All this stuff was like really wonderful to have as a 21, 22 year old just in New York, right? And I would go, I would get my pills on a you know Friday night or whatever and I would go feel alive and chase that feeling and just be dancing. And um, I felt beautiful, I felt sexual. Um, I would have people who, you know, walking down the street would never turn their heads. And then all of a sudden, because my aliveness was so irresistible, they were turning, you know, and just being like, I want you. All of that was so empowering. Um, And, you know, looking back, I'm like, there was also depression, right? There was a lot happening all concurrently. I'm very blessed about the therapy that I started receiving in that time that helped me sort of place it all in context. Like, could, I had my therapist ask me like, could you, could you imagine feeling that without the drugs, without the vibrators, without any of those things? And then because I had this map in my, I was like, I know this is possible in my system. That led me on this journey of celibacy. It led me on a journey of 
putting all the substances down for, for some time. And I wanted to know if I could, and I could. And that was like maybe one of the most liberating, you know, the first sabbatical that I took, I really was like, oh, you don't need anything else for this. This is just in the body. Um, so I, now it's like one of my missions in life. You know, I really <laughs> want everyone to know, like, no matter how much harm, how many times you've been hit, how much you've been abused, like, no matter what has been taken from you, no matter how much you've been trained to believe that your body can never feel safe, um, reclamation is possible. Reclamation is possible. And it might not be total, um, but there is, a, there is a path. There are many paths back into yourself. And I recommend, you know, somatic practitioners finding a group of somatic, you know, trainers, you know, a somatically held um, support group so that you have people who are just like, what does it feel like to return to the body? And I think anything is possible, you know, as you find your home in your body, which is the only, you know, this is my anti-capitalist pitch, but I'm like, the only thing you ever actually have in this whole life is your body. Everything else, you know, <laughs> you'll lose it. You'll give it away. You could be taken off, but not the body. So, yeah. And now I have arthritis. So there's also this pain element. It's like, how do I, it's like, oh, that still works. Even though, you know, it's like, I'm in pain. There's moments when it's less, there's moments when it's more, but so now I'm in the next level of learning. Like, how do I find pleasure with chronic pain and, you know, new levels, new levels. Yeah. I mean, there's something I was thinking about that, like age and how things change, you know, at different ages. It's not a game. It's not a game. It happens so much faster than you think it's going to. Not that way. No. And, you know, it starts to get, uh, because I remember I was like, oh, when I was young, you would just like hurt yourself and then you would recover. (laughs) And now it's just like, sometimes I will hurt myself and I'll just be like, dang, I think that's a forever one. (laughs) I I think we're, now that's, that's just what's up with my ankle or whatever. Like stuff will happen. I'm like that, you know, I don't know if this meniscus is going to heal or whatever. And, you know, trying to face that and be like, how do I not? surrender to hopelessness? How do I let that become a part of my identity now and, you know, heal what I can heal, but be with myself still if if something's not going to heal. So, so real. Um, You said something so beautiful about, and you wrote this too, about this idea. I think it's really alive um, kind of with like survivorship and ending rape culture and this idea that we're not going to end it by squashing our desire. You know, we're not going to end it by not being honest about shame and desire and pleasure. And I I love this question that you had is, you know, just about how we might even imagine desire that is liberated from patriarchy. Like, can we even imagine what desire looks like that isn't somehow in patriarchy? And I think that also connects to like your, all the stuff you talk about in terms of queer sex and just all of our internalized homophobia, all of our socialization, all of like, like the regressive thinking of, 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 you know, beliefs. And so just wondering if you would talk a little bit about that, like just yeah. all these decolonizing, <laughs> yes, unearthing, just little, all, simple, just little yeah. simple questions, you know, but yeah. they're so alive. And I feel like they come in these micro moments. Like I might be like, oh, I'm so liberated. And then all of a sudden I'm like, man, I'm such a, I'm being such a, uh, you know, mm. like I'm so, I'm being like, there's that internalized homophobia right there. There it is. And that's yeah. what doing <laughs> Well, and it helps so much to notice it, right? To just be like, oh, 
I just called you daddy. How do I feel about that? Like whatever it is. And it's just like, you know, how do I claim what I want to claim? You know, um, I'm always looking at myself, like, how do I not shame myself? How do I claim what I want to claim? How do I bring power into it? Because I can do anything. You know, this is one of the things I think that BDSM community teaches you is you can really do anything you fucking want to, but you have to do it from your powerful. You know, it's like, I consent to this. This is my choice. This is my agency. But I think the thing I'll say, you know, decolonization, I love this term because it's like, take back the land, take the land back, land back. And it makes me think of the territory of the body, right? That I'm like, the body, my mind, this is what I have. And colonization and capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy and ableism have all tried to take me from myself, take my body away from me, make me feel that I don't have agency in it. Um, And so whenever I have those moments where I'm like, I'm reclaiming myself, I'm taking this, this part of me back. And queer sex is an incredible one, you know, where it's like, oh, this sex is not lesser sex. Like, it's not like we're doing the best we can without that penis, you know? <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> if That's you are like wired for queer book. sex, I know. <laughs> like, I'm like, well, um, you know, but if, if you are wired, it depends how, and, and I, I do believe in that kind of idea of the wiring, right? I think some people are wired more for monogamy and others are wired more for polyamory. I think some are wired for, um, you know, opposite sex sex and some are wired for other things. Me, I'm just like, I'm wired for pleasure. So the gender, the the genitals, like none of that has never, has ever really quite mattered to me. But that internalized homophobia was still showing up where I was like, but we still have to figure out like where the penis will come from. Like, is this the penis or do you have a penis or is your penis in your mind? And there was just this moment of evolving where I was like, or not, there's no penis here and we're going to still have a fantastic time and I'm going to penetrate you and it's going to be with my fingers and my fingers are going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. Or like just really like landing in the confidence of like all these bodies are made to bring pleasure to each other. How do we be with that? I think now starting to live outside of the male gaze and outside of the white gaze are two actions that I'm like, no matter who you are, for white people, for women, for men, everyone. I'm like, how do you unhook yourself from seeing everything through that very limited lens? And how do you begin to look at yourself through your own lens, right? So I started having these moments where I was like, oh, am I really looking in the mirror at myself through the lens of a of someone who's not here, some white man, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. where I'm like, oh, you look like a, a big black woman. I'm like, but what if I look at myself through the eyes of a big black woman? And I'm like, you're fucking gorgeous. Like, you look fantastic. You look like home. You look sexy. You look like a statue from the earliest time in history. You look like, right, you start to see yourself through something that predates the categories of whiteness, right? You're something that predates such a limited concept of gender, um, something that is primal, right? Um, And I do think there's something in that, which is how do you begin to desire yourself, whatever yourself may be? And that has been such a liberating experience. I was just um, in conversation with uh, my friend, Sonia Renee Taylor, we are doing, we're setting off, embarking on this journey called the Radical Permission Institute. And one of the things we talked about in planning it was how 
for both of us, we had these massive awakening erotic experiences of being like, I desire myself. I'm calling out my own name when I come. Like, I mm. want me. I want my pleasure. And I have learned how to see and touch myself and the kind of touch I like and not just for orgasm, but just for the aliveness to feel my skin, you know, to feel myself and my skin. And, and that there's actually something quite sacred about it. And Alexis Pauline Gums is another teacher in this. It is like, if God is change, you know, if we accept what Octavia teaches us, God is this force of change, then each of us is that force of change, which each of us is divine. And how do you make love to something divine, right? And how do you live a life as someone divine, interacting with a bunch of other divine beings? It's a very different way of moving through the world than I'm someone who doesn't even deserve attention. I can't believe you're looking at me. I don't look like a magazine cover, whatever. I'm like, I don't care about that. Yeah, this is, you know, wasn't, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Please. Well, I just, I'm like, I want more people to notice the scripts in their minds, you know, that I'm like, who, you know, Malcolm X, who taught you to hate yourself, right? But I'm like, really? Someone benefits from you hating yourself. Someone benefits from you thinking there's something to fix. Who is that? And where, where, how much attention do you want to give them in your life? Right. Because by the time you notice that they're there for me, it had already been like 20 years that I had given them, you know, rent free occupation inside of my mind. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah. so I was just like, you're moving out and I'm not it's not fully to the place where they're nowhere in me. You know, they still show up sometimes like um, my partner is designing clothes and I tried on something the other day and it didn't fit. And I was like, Ugh. and I was like, hold up, hold up, hold up. I just need to show her how to make what's going to fit me. That's, di- that's a whole different orientation than I'll never look good in boxer briefs. I'm like, yes, I will. I will. Yeah. It's going to take a little a few more the iterations. The boxer briefs you know. are wrong. <laughs> the boxer briefs are wrong. It's not me that's wrong. Not me. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so curious about like, this is, and yeah, like I'm curious about like, so the piece of discernment, right? Like, so there's this place where it's like, is this coming from oppression or is this coming from the wiredness, right? So am I like, if someone's sitting there, if I'm sitting here and going like, well, am I wired for monogamy? Or is it that I have scripts in my mind telling me that I'm actually, and like, how do you help? How would you help people discern? Or when someone says like, I think I'm more asexual, or I think I'm, I think I'm actually more, you know, a nun, or I think that I'm, you know, like, and and then feeling bad that you can't access pleasure, but maybe I'm so oppressed that like, I don't know Who how knows, to right? Yeah, exactly. So Who like knows? Teasing out that that fine line, or just like the the both end of the two hundred percent reality of maybe some of it is oppression, and maybe it's yes. wiring and not yeah, beating I ourselves mean, up, not feeling guilty. Like, what do you say? Right there. That? Yeah, that's it. Right there. It's like yeah. for me, the first piece is always like some acceptance, right? Just like. You know, I've had friends who are like, I'm trying so hard to be poly and I'm so miserable. Like I'm trying (laughs) so hard because I know that's a better way to be a human, but I'm jealous and angry. And I'm like, then maybe you're not that. Like, it sounds like you've tried. You know, my thing is not to say, oh, monogamy was oppression and now poly is the new oppression and everyone has to be that. I'm like, well, no, what we just want to say is there's always spectrums. There's always a range because we are biodiverse right? Like literally biodiverse. So for me, the wiring is, it's a real thing. It's like 
some creatures in nature pair for life and others don't. And humans have the capacity to do multiple options to, I tend to do sort of several, you know, like longer things. Now I have someone where I'm like, dang, I really might be with you for like the whole rest of my whole life. (laughs) Like, you know, it's kind of amazing. I didn't expect to enjoy that. It's delightful, right? So this, you have to be willing to be with yourself through changes too. And I think that's the piece is you won't know if you don't even ask. So when I, when I talk to people who are like, I'm just monogamous, you know, and I'm like, have you ever even considered anything else? Are you monogamous because you are terrified that that's the only way you can keep the attention of the person you're with? And just to start to interrogate those things a little bit to make sure you are that because it brings you joy, not because it, it, it assuages some fear. Because what I see so often is people being like, I'm monogamous, but they never relax into it. They're constantly looking for uh, trust, trust, you know, like, how can I possibly trust anybody? I'm like, maybe, maybe the trust is hard because one or the other of you is actually not wired for this kind of engagement. And like, what would it look like to trust each other to be different in this Um, There's this beautiful model called relationship anarchy that I love, that I point people towards. Um, Nothing is perfect, but it's pretty close. And it has this idea of like, what if you begin with trust in a relationship? What if you create your own agreements? You know, maybe you're monogamous 364 days of the year, and then one day something else happens and you don't hold it against each other because there's so many beautiful, sexy people in the world, you know, like maybe, (laughs) right. Maybe, um, maybe you go through phases of different ways of being like, I find that I'm very poly when I'm single, like, you know, like I'm, I love everyone and I love all my lovers and it's just like very delightful. But then when I fall head over heels into romantic love, it's like, I don't have the time you know, it's literally for me, it becomes a time like I am romantically involved in my work. Like I am a romantically, I'm romantically right. Like I wake up like ah, my book <laughs> that I'm writing right now is so sexy to me. And that's all I want to think about and give my attention to. And my partner, you know, I'm like those, that's a full time life. So other people are different. They're like, I actually have the energy, the attention to do multiple things for life for years. Um, so to me, most of it is like, at, be curious about where the shaping comes from. Give yourself permission to try it out and then give yourself total acceptance to be however you actually are. I also love, and one last thing, and I know we're always no, at no, the time zone, okay. but Ursula Le Guin. Oh yeah. Ursula Le Guin is like this incredible sci-fi writer. And she talks about these things where it's like, it, what happens, hers is a thing where you change genders so you're like generally non-gendered and then around the time of like a period, then you come into, you know, going more towards the feminine and more towards the masculine. And it's for the sake of, um, what do you call it? Mating, right? And then you come back out of it into no gender. So in the course of your lifetime, you could be, you could carry a child as a woman and then the next time be the father of the child or whatever else. And it's The Left Hand of Darkness is the name of this book. So I think about that too, that I'm like, maybe all of the labels could fall away and you could just be like, what am I in relationship to this person? With this person, I am monogamous or more submissive or more dominant or more feminine or whatever. 
And then with this person, something else emerges, right? And I kind of love the idea of like these, it's like, what if all the other stuff fell away and we weren't like, you know, I don't walk into a room like, here's my labels, you know, because I'm like, who knows? In this room, <laughs> you know, something new might be possible, so... Yeah. Thank you so much for all of you. Just, I mean, I think some of this is like, you know, I know you're talking about all the things that you absolutely love, but it's also like, it's a lot of, it's a lot of you, you know, it's a lot of yeah. like, ah, beautiful work for instance, so much gratitude for all your sharing. I'm just, I was swimming in so many of your words, you know, just like what, I always want to take those phrases and just write them down. Oh, we did a good job. We did a good job here. We created a nice sacred space. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So just let's just check out. Like, how are you feeling? Anything you want to say before sort of, I might say some words and then I'll transition it. Yeah. I feel really good. I feel really satisfied. Um, I I feel really um, plant-like. Right. Like I feel like your attention felt very like water and sunlight and good, good, good dirt, you know. Um, So I feel very like, oh, you know, like how plants come up and they like turn towards the sun. And now I'm like, okay, good. That was the day. Now I'm going to rest. So I think I will sleep well tonight. That feels good. So thank you very much. Thank you. And thank all the people who are present that yeah, we can sense there. but not see so exactly yeah no and thank, thank you. you i feel um yeah i like the metaphor of print like because you're like you were like sunshine you know and and it just felt like there was some nurturing happening and some many different ways about pleasure about the movement about you know just um a lot of nurturing a lot of care i feel very intimate i feel close to you right now yeah me too like like, we're friends now okay we're friends. okay <laughs> good we're all friends. right Cool. I like that. <laughs> um, so thank you for just kind of coming in with intimacy and like trust and having having conversations in that way. So yeah, so maybe like we could take a minute. I'm just gonna say some nice closing ritual words. Um, just want to really thank everybody who's listening, who just sort of showed up and took their Friday nights um, to just be in this conversation and to be with Adrian and myself and to remember all the amazing ancestors that are at our backs that um, allow us to be free in this moment that provided for us the weekend, the labor workers, um, all the folks that allowed us to have pleasure um, and all the folks that we're fighting for, all the kids, all the people to come, all the beings, all the earth that we're fighting for, everything. Um, Just to take a breath with each other, to remember to love each other, to lift each other up and all boats rise and that we can do this and we can be in the mud together. Thank you so much, Adrian. Um, thank you. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional unceded Ramatush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, 
Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities. <laughs>